Pain, C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. You know that. You stub your toe. You can't think about anything else for the moment. Pain insists upon being attended to. Then he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so when we go somewhere that we ought not to go, what we're going to see Isaiah do in this passage is he's going to exclaim, hey, 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 not that way. Don't go that way. And there's going to be moments for Israel that are going to be uncomfortable. They're feeling the pressure. They're feeling the squeeze. And when you and I feel the pressure and the squeeze, call that pain, call that suffering, call that a trial. When we feel that pressure in that squeeze, it's going to draw out of us that which we trust. You'll find out. When the squeeze is on, what you trust in will come out. And so we're going to see who Israel is going to turn to. We're going to see who Isaiah says they should turn to. And we're going to be um, hopefully <laughs> enriched or challenged or encouraged as we look through it. So C.S. Lewis, pain is the great attention grabber. Israel, Isaiah wants to say, pain, what you're going through, this is the great attention grabber. So when you're wondering why this is going on, just realize sometimes God has to, because we've become a little deaf, we've become a little numb in our ways, he sometimes has to just literally yell at you, hey, oh, oh, that's what's going on, so that we would actually listen. So chapter 28, we are going to see five times this happen. Chapter 28, verse 1. Ah, The ESV starts with the word, ah. The New King James starts with the word, woe. Others say, doom. Some say, sorrow. Others say, oh. And then one commentator I've been using for Isaiah, I thought, put this really well and said, whatever it translates in all those many ways, the point is, hey, it's meant to grab your attention. Now, the word was used in funerals. So the idea here is that when Isaiah's launching this word, hey, woe, sorrow, ah, oh, doom, when he's saying this, he's using a word that would be expressed or even a sound that would be expressed at a funeral when you lose someone because there is such a devastation and a destruction coming that it's like a funeral. Isaiah's getting them ready for that kind of sorrow. This is attention grabbing. So I'm going, I just I love the idea because it's so contemporary, isn't it? It's like a word we would use. How many of you guys say woe? I think that maybe you, Chris, should put some parking signs like woe to you who park here or something. But yeah, like, hey, is kind of how we would talk, right? So Isaiah is going to five times say, hey, so if you want to look at it real quick, chapter 20, verse 1, hey, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, 29. Verse 1, hey, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. 30, verse 1, hey, stubborn children, declares the Lord. Chapter 31, verse 1, hey, to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. 32 is skipped, but 33, how dare Isaiah skip 32? Uh, 33, hey, you destroyer. So there you have the five. Five of our eight, I think, chapters. So he's going to get our attention. Now, what we're going to see is in these, um, there's going to be, there's a story that's told here, okay? So chapters 28 and 29, we're going to see a problem. We're going to see the context. What's going on? Hey, this is what's going on in your guys' cities. Doesn't look good. Chapters 30 to 31, we're going to see, okay, there's a problem. Here's solution number one. It's not a good solution. So then chapters 32 and 33, you're going to say, here's solution number two. Solution number one is going to be Israel's idea. Ah, there's a problem. Hey, let's go to Egypt. And Isaiah is going to say in chapters 31 to 
32 to 33. No. I have a different solution. Not Egypt. Okay, so problem, two solutions, and then we're going to see a conclusion. That's going to be chapters 34 and 35. But So let's, let's dive into the problem. What's going on here? Chapter 28, verse 1. Hey, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. <laughs> the crown, the leaders, they're drunk. That's a problem. Right away, we see this isn't looking very good. Now, Ephraim was the area above Jerusalem where most of Israel was, and they're going to fall to the Assyrians not too far, within Isaiah's generation. Um, but it's going to, you're going to see he's going to later include Jerusalem in this. It's going to trickle down. So there's problems all over Israel, okay? So the government up north has problems. It's going to trickle down south. But so, hey, you proud crown, you drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Oh my goodness. You can see him talking to them. You guys are just drunk and passed out, and on your head is the fading flower of glorious beauty. You once were something, but you have drunk yourselves into this withering, pathetic, former vision of what you used to be. You guys are going down. The proud crown, verse 3 uh, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. <laughs> oh, figs. Mm. Yep, that's Ephraim and their drunken rulers. They're going to be the figs. In that day, Yahweh of hosts will be a crown of glory. So their fading glory is, their glory is fading, but Yahweh will be the crown of glory. And a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. And strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Okay, so there's some problems when your king has a nuclear missile button just right there on his throne. And yet, around the button on his throne are bottles and cans and all kinds of alcoholic beverages, and he is just wasted. The crown is slipping off his head, and he's leaning precariously over this button of destruction. It's not a good feeling, right? I would be terrified if that was our situation. And so Ephraim has a problem. So what are the people in Ephraim thinking? We need help because our king won't help us. Okay, so we're going to see their solution in a minute. But now we turn our attention in chapter 29 to Ariel. This is the only time you're going to see Jerusalem mentioned as Ariel. Um, So this is Jerusalem. Now, the word Ariel, look at 29 verse 1. Hey, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Why do they call it Ariel? So the best guess that people have is that Ariel sounds a lot like the term for the, um, for the hearth around the altar in the temple. So, you know, there's the fire on the altar and you burn your offerings there. Well, there would be a hearth around that. And that Ariel is a term for that. And so what, what Isaiah is doing is he's calling the city of Jerusalem the hearth of the temple or of the altar. He's using the altar terminology for the city. So it's like the whole city is basically God's altar. Now there's going to be a play on, maybe you can kind of see where this is going. He's going to use a play on words here in a minute. Okay. So he's uh, referring to Jerusalem here. Hey, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. And year to year, let the feasts run their round Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. So Jerusalem is going to become like an altar, and there's going to be a slaughter. There's going to be people offered up. If, as if an offering, the city will become like an altar. People are going to die. That's, that's what Isaiah is alluding to. It's not going to be good in the future. 
Verse, um, verse 3, And I will encamp against you all around, and will, be will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low from the earth. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech will whisper. But, verse 5, there's hope. The multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. It's just going to blow away. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by Yahweh of hosts with thunder and an earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her in her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. You've had a bad dream and you wake up and you're like, oh, the relief when it's gone, right? This is God saying, look, yeah, distress is coming, but I will make sure that it will be as if a dream. It's just going to pass. Verse 8. As when a hungry man dreams he is eating and wakes with his hunger not satisfied. That's lame. Or as when a thirsty man dreams he is drinking and awakes faint and his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. They will come against you, but they're not going to get what they want. Now, we're going to see this happen next week in chapters 36 through 39. The Assyrians, who are the present world power, are going to come right up to Jerusalem's door. They're going to camp around it, and it's going to get really intense. And then they're going to wake up the next day, and Israel's going to look out over their walls and think, where did they go? Literally like a dream, Assyria is going to disappear. How, you say? How are the enemies going to disappear? We'll have to come next week or read ahead. Okay, so um, now go down to verse 13 and you'll see uh, what is going on. So now when he's calling Jerusalem Ariel, a, ter a temple term, you can see there's sort of a tongue-in-cheek going on here because in verse 13, they're not doing so well in the religious order. So 29, 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's all fake. They're told how to play the part. Therefore, because of that, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, or woe, or hey, you who hide deep from, the, from Yahweh your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, <laughs> he doesn't know anything. He has no understanding. <laughs> this is how Israel's treating him. They're acting like, no, 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 you have nothing to do with who we are. So we just pay lip service and we move on, right? It's kind of like fire insurance. How many people treat God like fire insurance? I'll go to church, I'll do my prayers, I'll do my tithes just so I don't go to hell. And then verse 17, we, still, we see this ebb and flow of God's like, it's coming, but I love you. So verse 17, it is not yet a very little while, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain a fresh joy in Yahweh, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Good times are coming. To catch some of the illusions. The blind will see, the deaf will hear. When does that happen? Well, when a man named Jesus 
of Nazareth walks around in Ariel in Jerusalem and begins healing some people. Also, you know what he said in that city to the Pharisees? Matthew chapter 15, he quotes verse 13. He says, look, you are just like your your great, great, great granddad. You draw near to me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. You remember how they were washing their hands in the proper way, the Pharisees, and Jesus and his disciples didn't do that. And the Pharisees are like, your disciples clearly aren't very religious because they only know how to wash their hands properly. Now, this isn't just soap and water. There's like a certain technique to this, right? There's a certain way you had to do it to show, I know the ways of the law. And they didn't do it. And so they give Jesus a hard time. You're not even teaching your disciples how to be properly religious. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, well, at least their heart's in the right place because you guys talk big talk with your mouths, but your heart is far from God. And he quotes this passage almost saying, if you will, um, yep, the time is now that the deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, so I'm bringing restoration. But you guys are living like the religious rulers way back in Isaiah's day. You're living in the city of Ariel, but you are actually better served to be the offering on the altar than helping people to worship God at the altar. Times are coming full circle. So we see, we see a couple problems, right? The crown is getting drunk. The religious system is totally that. It's a religious system. The people have no heart or relationship for God. It's all lip service. It's all actions. It's all acting. It's all just trying to get on the right side of the deity so he's not angry with us. And so we see things aren't going well right now. So here are some solutions. And Isaiah is going to criticize them. So, oh, I know. If Assyria is coming down from the north and they're going to press on us, why don't we just drop down to the south and ask Egypt for help? They're really strong. They have horses and chariots. Ooh. So Isaiah is going to address that in our next two chapters, 30 and 31. Chapter 30, verse 1. Ah, hey, you stubborn children, declares Yahweh, who carry out a plan but not mine. And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Ooh, you know how the Psalms always say, I want to take shelter in the shadow of your wings. Here, they're taking refuge in the shadow of Egypt. He's, Egypt's become their mama bird. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. But in verse 15, we see Isaiah giving him proper direction. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. returning they're going away to egypt quietness egypt is not quiet they are the vegas of the times everyone goes down to egypt for a good time everybody trusts in egypt's magnificent horses and all of the grain that they can grow and by the way they have the pantheon of gods oh there's no god like in egypt remember how israel themselves built the golden calf on the way out of egypt and as soon as solomon died they built the golden calf up in Ephraim. Egypt had these, this lingering presence. They were the place. You need help? Who do you call? Big billboards everywhere. It's like the Vegas like, Lawyer Institute or something. like The big cheesy smile of the suit and tie is like, call Egypt when in, help, when in trouble. And so they call them. But God's saying, hey, hey, no, no, no. Don't go the flashy way. Don't go with what everyone's telling you to do. Marketing doesn't always have the corner on what's true. I'm asking you to just quietly Be where you are and trust me. Just trust me. I've got you covered. But, we continue, you were unwilling. And you said, no, 
We will flee on horses. Therefore, God says, you shall flee away. Right? They're going to go into exile. And they say, we will ride upon swift steeds. And so Yahweh says, therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. Like, you can't hide from me. You're going to be on a horse and fly away. I'll make sure you fly away. You're going to be on a fast horse. I'll make sure your pursuers are faster. I know how to find you. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one and the threat of five at the threat of five. You shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Ooh, Israel, please return to me in rest and quietness and trust. So um, a lot of good things promised in verses 18 and down. But we're going to go to chapter 31, verse 1. And Isaiah continues the criticism. So in chapter 31, hey, to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Have you seen those horsemen? Oh my goodness, their muscles as they ripple and they ride those horses with fury. Like it's like almost like Israel has this little man crush on Egyptian warriors, right? Isaiah says, woe to them just because they're very strong. But you don't look to the Holy One of Israel or consult Yahweh? You guys are crazy. Now, notice what he's picking out here. He says that they're going to Egypt to trust in chariots and in horsemen. Chariots and horsemen. You might remember back in Exodus when they first left Egypt in chapter 14. They were in a tight spot just like they are now, and they're backed up against the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army's coming after them, and they're panicking, right? Ah, what do we do? But Moses, because they still have a good head on their shoulders and a good leader who's not drunk and passed out in some tent, he's leading them. He says, look, look to Yahweh, be strong, stand still and see his salvation. And the waters part, and they go through the Red Sea, and they're delivered. And then Egypt, and it specifies their horses and horsemen go into the Red Sea and the waters close over them. The horses and the horsemen were conquered at the Red Sea. And yet here we are all these years later in Isaiah chapter 31 and Israel is lusting for the chariots and the horsemen of Egypt. The ones that they already knew cannot stand up to Yahweh's parting a Red Sea. This is how far they've gone. And this is their idea of a solution is, oh yeah, Egypt's always had horses and horsemen. Well, verse three, the Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When Yahweh stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. Okay, you want to go with the horses and the horsemen, Israel? Great, okay. So when the Red Seas close over them again, you'll be with them. That's your choice. But you know how that story ends. Now, he's going to give them some hope. Like, don't forget about me. In the middle of verse 4, it says, Yahweh of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on his hill. Like birds hovering, so Yahweh of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. So turn him from, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. I highly suggest, Isaiah says, you don't turn to Egypt for help. Okay. So what is Isaiah suggesting? Chapters 32 and 33. Here's my solution. Behold, chapter 32. A king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. There's a king with princes who's going to be like that for you. Refuge, relief. Ah, 
This is Isaiah's solution. Now look at this, verse 3. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. Remember when Isaiah was called in chapter 6, it was said, who shall go for us so that those who see will not see, those who hear will not hear. Because Israel is, this was last week, Israel is so rotten through that there's no hope but to fell them so that a new growth can come out of the rotten log. That's how, that's how rotten they are. It's best just to start over, give them new birth. So Isaiah, you're going to go blind them and you're going to go make them not hear so that they will fall. But Isaiah sees a time when there will be a king over Israel. And then instead of what I'm doing, instead of this horrible situation where we're going to fall, we will have eyes that will see and ears that will hear. And then in verse four, the heart of the hasty will understand and know and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, so you can, an allusion there to the drunken rulers. They're not going to, nobody's going to care about them anymore. Now in verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. You might remember back in, uh, I think it was chapter 2 and 3, Isaiah lays into the women of Jerusalem. And he talks about how they, they jingle around everywhere they go because of all their jewelry and they've got all their handbags and all their scarves and all their, like, they're totally high-end fashion in Jerusalem. And he's like, well, you're all going to be bald and you're going to have no clothes to wear in the end. And you're seven of you going to hang on to the arm of one fat, pudgy, little pathetic man saying, please take us because there's nobody else. It's going to be that bad, he says. Well, he's coming back to the women And um, you can almost see why people want to go to Egypt for help. Because, well, Egypt's got the gold, and we want to keep our high life going. Well, Isaiah lays into the women again. But look at verse 15. And he warns that things are going to get bad. But then in verse 15, they're going to get bad until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. The wilderness bears fruit. The fruit grows all the way up into a forest. This is full-on fruitful progression. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Remember 30 verse 15, what do you want them to do? Return and rest in quietness and trust. You will be saved. Well, finally, there will be quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. This is my solution, guys. There's a king we're forgetting about. So chapter 33, he's continuing his solution. Hey, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the political threats that are squeezing the people of God and causing them to panic and say, ah, we need help. Let's go to Egypt. Isaiah's talking to Assyria, who's coming on down. And he's saying, hey, you Assyrians, you who destroy, you will be destroyed. You who betray, you will be betrayed. Just as it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. So Isaiah's warning us, hey, don't worry about them. They're, they're small stuff compared to God. So verse 2, oh, Yahweh. Here Isaiah just bursts out in spontaneous prayer. Be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. It's almost like Isaiah just can't help but just, everyone, let me just throw you a bone if you don't get what we're talking about yet. Don't go to Egypt. Wait for God. This is his place and his city. He's promised that he will be here with us, so let's not leave him or we will leave our refuge. Wait for him. Yes, he's not as swift or as quick as the Egyptians. He's not the, ooh, the eye candy that's there now. He's invisibly there with us. We have to trust he's going to come through.
And then verse 17, going, continuing on with Isaiah's solution. If we trust in God and not Yahweh, verse 17, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Who is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? In other words, the terror of war, where is it? Because we're trusting God. It's gone. You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure tongue, the Assyrians, that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there Yahweh in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. And Yahweh is our king. He will save us. That's my solution. So you can see Isaiah puts the hanky down that he was sweating, wiping the sweat off with, sits down and says, or sits down like this, and says, choose now, Egypt or or Yahweh. Who are we going to trust as we're being squeezed, as we're being tried? So you've seen the problem. Things aren't good in Israel. You've seen solution one. Let's go to Egypt. They've got the horses, the chariot, the strong people We've seen Isaiah's solution. Now, there's a king. There's a king who will defend us. There's a king who will rescue us. There's a king who, not, who will not only turn the enemy away, but will cause the ground beneath our feet to blossom like the Garden of Eden. Sounds a lot better. I'm just suggesting, though, it was my sermon, so I'm partial, Isaiah says. But maybe, you know, maybe you should listen to it. Well, he then concludes, and by the way, this concludes the first part of Isaiah, because the next part, um, chapter 36 is really a hinge to the second part. Remember the second part's going to be all this like glorious future coming because there's an assumption Israel's done. So now let's talk about their future restoration. Well, all this judgment's going to come to an end right here tonight. Next week, there's going to be this historical story about how God delivers them from Assyria, a little hinge, and then we're going to see this glorious chapters 40 through 66 quoted all over the New Testament and, and it's just picturing the, the good times when God and humans are working together. But, so Isaiah is going to conclude, really, the whole first part of Isaiah we've studied together in these two chapters, 34 and 35. How is he going to conclude it? By giving us two scenarios. If you take solution number one, to trust in Egypt, look to chapter 34 for what you will become. A desert. Or if you take solution number two and entrust trust in Yahweh, then you will see what will become of you. Chapter 35. You will become a garden. Desert garden. Your choice. But now, this isn't just the, the results or the conclusion to what we're reading tonight. It's really a conclusion of everything. Because remember how the book opened. We opened with chapters 1 through 12 where Isaiah's talking largely to Jerusalem, their political situations, and they're worried, because it wasn't the Assyrians then. Um, there, there were other enemies. It was, uh, it was the northern kingdom of Israel, of all people, coming against Jerusalem. And um, I, if I remember, it was Edom. And they're coming together against Jerusalem. They're like all worried. And Isaiah's like, guys, trust God. And that's when he says the famous, because there will be a child and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And Isaiah wants them to know in chapters 1 through 12, God is with us. Don't go anywhere. You have everything you need right here. Then in chapters 13 through 23, we see Isaiah then turn his attention to all the neighboring nations, and he starts naming each of them one by one, saying, they're going down, they're going down, they're going down, they're going down, they're going. It's almost like a sprinkler from Jerusalem, right? Going down, 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 down. And, and his point was for the Israelites to hear, hey, 
I'm with you. This is where you need to be. Don't trust in them. Don't trust in them. Don't trust in them. Don't trust in them. And I'm the God over all these nations anyways. I'm telling you they're going to go down. They're going to go down. I've got it all in my hand. Then chapters 24 to 27, we move out beyond those nations to the rest of the world. And we see this little apocalypse, this little unveiling of the future. And Isaiah shows all the things, the turmoil and the glory that's to come. Because through all this, his messages in Jerusalem, his messages about the nations, his message about the end times. It was all saying, trust in the one who has all of this in his hand. And now we return tonight in chapters 28 to 35. We return to messages to Jerusalem. So you've seen the God who's bigger than the earth. Now, Jerusalem, please consider trusting him. So if you don't, if you don't trust him, chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For Yahweh is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like vines falling from, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Oh, that's a pretty good option, right? For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Now Isaiah just picks the closest neighbor just to show, look, this is, let's just pick somebody you know and see how they're going to end. Upon the people I have devoted to destruction, Yahweh has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat and with the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of kidneys and rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Now, there's fertilizer and water, and then there's that. That's how the land will be nourished. For Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There is, there is no one there to call it a kingdom and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nestles and thistles in its fortresses. Remember thorns and thistles? That's what happened when Adam and Eve turned against God in Genesis 3. Now, Adam, you're gonna have to work against thorns and thistles to get fruit. Well, this land... You're not watering it with water, you're watering it with blood. There's no fertilizer, there's the fat of slaughter. And now there is thorns and thistles. That's the fruit that's coming out of it. Um, it shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches, verse 14. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds herself a resting place. Now, the point of these animals is that they're all desolate animals that live in the, like the, the desert, wild, barren desert animals. So the idea here is that this is not a place for humans anymore. It's overrun with wildness, the complete opposite of what God had Adam and Eve do in, in, in settling a garden. They have let the wilderness take over. Verse 15. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of Yahweh. Not one of these things shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. So all the animals are accounted for. But the people, 
For the mouth of Yahweh has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Whoa. Remember how God promises over and over to Israel how they will possess the land and they will inherit it and live in it from generation to generation? Those promises are now being given to the wild animals. They're the ones who are going to inherit the land in your place. Okay. You still, Egypt sound like a good option? Yeah. Chapter 35. Or let's trust Yahweh. Now, this is the, watch the literary contrasts, okay? It's meant to be, 34 is a desert, 35 is a garden. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an ancient heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense, the recompense of your God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, see chapter 34, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. Are you tired of traffic? Oh, God's got a plan. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. Not the 91, not the 405, the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This path is going to be so clear that even if you're a little dense, you will not lose your way. It's impossible to get lost is what that meant. Verse 9, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it, come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Now we have people. Ah, This place is filled with people. The redeemed shall walk there. By the way, redeemed, this is the word of the kinsman redeemer. Which, um, which the Jews had a law where if you were a family member with means and you knew a family member who had needs, you were obligated to help them. And by helping them, it would be claiming you're part of my family because I'm helping you with my means, so we are a family. And that's the idea of kinsman redeemer. Here, God is being their kinsman redeemer. He's calling these humans family. I'm going to help you. But the redeemed shall walk there. Verse 10. And the ransomed, those delivered, delivered from bondage, bought and brought out of their slavery, the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Now, joy upon their heads, because what would happen is if you were grieving or you were mourning for a funeral, you'd wear a shawl over your head. It was like a mantle of grief. So instead of that, joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The end. (laughs) That's good. That's, That's quite a contrast. So here's what Isaiah is doing, right? On one hand, you can say, don't go to Egypt, they'll fall. Like, eh, I've heard that before. Trust in God, eh, I've heard that before. I mean, he did say that. But then you show them the result. Okay, if you take the Egypt option, let me show you in vivid graphic detail what that's going to look like for you. (laughs) He, He lays upon them this wilderness, this wasteland that's very graphic, really. 
or if you trust in Yahweh, it's going to be like this. And he uses all this Garden of Eden imagery. He talks about how people have this walkway, this access way. Nobody gets lost. There's no wild beasts. The blind even can see. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. What do you say? The lame will leap like a deer? This is good stuff if you trust in Yahweh. By the way, you see Jesus do all of that. And Jesus is leading a pathway for us. We have this highway. We are the redeemed. We're the ransomed. We're the ones traveling on this highway where even a fool won't lose their way. And this is where Isaiah has been telling them in all these chapters, we saw that word woe or ah or hey, pay attention because you're going the wrong way and I need to wake you up because there's a highway you're missing. You don't want to miss this path. It's going to take you through the rich and abundant blessings of God. But they're going their own way, and they're going to end up like chapter 34, a wilderness and a wasteland. So what Isaiah, you might have noticed it. There's this little encouragement right here in the middle of 35, verse 3. He says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Isaiah is calling to God's people to look around them. Who is fearful? Who is weak? Who is, who is at the point of giving up and trusting Egypt? Encourage them that they don't need that, that Yahweh's in our midst. Encourage them. Hebrews, by the way, quotes this verse to the church and says, do the same. Encourage one another. Strengthen the weak hands and the feeble knees. Isaiah is asking us to lean into the trust of God. If you're afraid of your problem and your situation, whatever it is that's squeezing you tonight in your life, you're afraid of losing. You're afraid of losing someone, something, or just not winning. We don't like that. We want to win. And so when times get tough, you start looking around, what can we do to help ourselves win? Egypt is a really easy help. We often, when things get rough, we start looking outward for help. Because what's around us is the easiest thing to turn to. You know the last place we want to go? The last place we want to go is within. We don't want to look within. Because if I'm losing, I don't trust. I don't think I've got it. I think I'm a loser. But here's the struggle, or here's the challenge, is that God actually wants us to look within when we're pressed. Because what happens is when we look outside, we tend to go toward the Egypts in our lives. Oh, the horses, the chariots, the horsemen. This is why Isaiah says, um, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. We know we have weak hands and feeble knees. That's why we're trying to go to Egypt as a crutch to help us. But Isaiah is saying, no. Don't go there. Look at your own weaknesses. Strengthen your own knees and your own hands. Because you need change from the inside out. That's what will save us. And by the way, that's what it looks like to trust God. How do I know if I'm trusting Yahweh, option two, or trusting Egypt, option one? How do I know? Well, those who are leaning on Egypt are avoiding their weaknesses. They know they're there, but they're like, eh, Egypt will be a great band-aid for us. You know you're trusting God when you can look at what's really going on in your life and stare it in the face and say, all right, God, come and change me here. I don't need that to change me. I need you inside me to change me. That's true trust. I think we have the idea sometimes that all we have to do is just get better, add some better things in our lives. Attach that, go to that, bring this in. And often what happens is we just crowd too much garbage in our lives. Because we think in long lines of, I just need things to be better. But God is thinking along the lines of, I don't want 
you to just have things better. I want you to be a new person from the inside. It's, it's like this. You see the horse and the horse is strong. I want that horse. God's saying, no, you don't. Because I want to turn you into something like a horse. I want the strength of that horse to come from within. And that's why, that's why it said in chapter 30, um, in his accusation, 30 verse 1, Ah, to the stubborn children who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit. They're not trusting in my spirit within them. They're looking outward from the outside in. We'll fix things by making the outside better. They're not looking within. So Isaiah says, look at your weak hands and your feeble knees. Look at the anxiousness within you and say, no, 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 trust God. Trust God. He will save you. He will deliver you. Look at 31, chapter 31. It was in verse 3. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Stop looking for the external fixes when I want to get within you and change you there. And that, friends, that is how we look like chapter 35 with this garden and this blossoming. Gardens happen when the soil is healthy, when seeds are there and they're watered. It grows from there out. And God wants his spirit in us and he wants us to trust his work in us so that when we start to let go of our reliances upon this and that and our trust upon these ridiculous things and these Egyptian horses and whatever, when we can let go of those things, they will stop choking the growth that God wants to do in us. And that's why the New Testament uses things like you're a new creation. You have the fruit of the spirit. These things have to grow from the inside out. These aren't just, it's not like God's got a candy shop. and He's like, hey, what do you need? Look, come buy it. Come add it to your life. It's like a t-shirt, you know, prove that you went to camp and wear your shirt. So many of us do that as fans of sports or bands or whatever. We like to show our support. God's like, I don't need you to put things on. I need things within. I need you to start trusting what I'm doing within. But let's be honest. We doubt that God can work within us. So we think there's a fix outside of us. Therefore, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees and tell the anxious of heart Fear not, God will save us. So in order to win, what we need to do is we need to lean in. We need to lean in to our weaknesses. We need to lean in to our insecurities. And we need to lean in to our needs. Because when you are weak, when you are leaning into your weakness, your insecurity, and your need, when you are there, that's when God can say, Finally, you're trusting me. Finally. So don't lean toward Egypt. It's strong, it's powerful, I know. Lean into your weakness, your insecurity, your need. Because when you lean into those, you win. That's the idea. Trust God to work from the inside out. And I think that we will see, we will see ourselves on this highway and we will see waters gushing out in the wilderness around us that's when we will see change so who do you trust who are you leaning on where are you leaning in your problem father we ask that